Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. On your mark, get ready, go. Listen to our podcast because our guest today is Mark Summers from the hit Nickelodeon show Double Dare. He's also executive producer on many shows on uh, Food Network. And we were fortunate enough to have him on our other show, Two Buffoons, where we got to interview him about uh, some really funny things that happened in his life, including the infamous fight he had with Burt Reynolds on The Tonight Show, Mm. some of his appearances at the Magic Castle in California, one of the most prestige magic places uh, they have around the U.S., I think. Prestigious magic. Yeah, it was pretty cool to uh, have the doorbell. Yeah, that's the doorbell when you hit it. It goes, prestigious magic. And it's also when you flush the toilet, too, it does that. Yeah, it goes, prestigious magic. (laughs) No, it was cool to have Mark back and and to talk to him about his early days in stand-up because I feel like everyone knows him from Double Dare and What Would You Do and Unwrapped and, and all those Food Network shows that he produces. But it was really cool to sit down with him we weren't with him sitting down we were sitting he was walking somewhere but yeah. to talk about he was, wa- he was walking as far away as he possibly could from us he said i'm in california you guys are in new york tell me which way heads me further towards san francisco and i will head there yeah he thought that if he walked away he would find an area with a bad signal that would you know cancel the would- call without him being mean and and hanging up he was letting right. nature or or yeah, nature took its course. Yeah, exactly. but it didn't. It was no. It, what what stunk for him is that the call not only lasted, uh, but it was very clear. It couldn't have been clearer. And unfortunately yeah. for him, he is he couldn't have been nicer. He yeah, was also and he just divulged quite a lot. Divulged prestige, magic. I mean, that's I. I think if if we keep talking, we're just gonna reenact everything he said. Yeah, let's do that. Okay, here we go. Hey guys, it's me, Mark. Oh, hey Mark, thanks for coming on the show. It, it's Ryan and gotta go. Oh, that's damn it. That's exactly how it went. Man, what a nice guy. <laughs> All right, that's good. All right, well, it's episode three of Joke yeah. Artists, and our guest today is Mark Summers. And it's hard to hold back saying Mark Summers when you say <laughs> your name because it's just so yeah. iconic and brings back just such great memories. Mark, thank you so much for for being on the show. Thank you. You know, I hear the word iconic a lot recently, and it's something that you never think is going to uh, come before your name. And who knew when we were doing those shows at Nick back in the day and even at Food Network with Unwrapped that they turn into what they turned into? Yeah, I mean, incredible. Is that is that weird for you to wake up and look in the mirror and go, I am iconic? And then you, you brush well, your hair and... <laughs> <laughs> I, I never say those words, but, you know, it's, it, it's just so odd when people say that to me, you know, because... To me, you know, Frank Sinatra is iconic. Sammy Davis Jr. is iconic. Those people are iconic. You know, Johnny Carson. So I, I don't put myself anywhere near that category. But it's it's flattering to think that you had such an uh, impact on a particular generation. And, you know, that just happens for some reason. I can't figure out why. Well, I think you need to uh, write a crooner album then. You need to start singing. <laughs> yeah. I'd love to do that. That would be amazing. <laughs> Well, everybody knows you from Unwrapped and and what would you do in Double Dare? And and what struck me was I don't think many people know that there is a video of you online from 1973 on the Celebrity Review and you're doing magic and stand-up. And and whenever I mention this to people, people go, whoa, he did magic and stand-up? How did you get into that and and what made you kind of want to blend stand-up with magic? Well, actually, you should go look at uh, a show called Norm Crosby's Comedy Shop, which is also online, where I uh, did uh, stand-up uh, back, oh, gee, may have been 75, 76. Um, I came out of the womb in Indianapolis, Indiana, knowing exactly what I wanted to do, which was be on television. But the problem is, when you're in Indiana and your dad runs a grocery store and your mom's a homemaker, how the hell does that even happen? And so um, I used to come home from school and turn on uh, the ABC affiliate at the time in Indy, WLWI, and I would see this young guy by the name of Johnny Carson do a show called Who Do You Trust? And I thought, oh, this guy is amazing. And did research and found out that he was a magician. And I figured, well, maybe that's how I get on stage is by doing magic. And there was a kid down the street, Dave Lawton, who was a part of a, a, a magic club at Westlane Junior High, where I was soon to go. And he started teaching me magic. And then I joined the magic club. And 
realized, you know, I was pretty good on stage and um, I just was having a ball and also starting to make some money doing birthday parties and, you know, weddings and bar mitzvahs and dog shows and wakes and then whatever I could do back in the day in Indiana. And I started to make <laughs> some money and, uh, you know, uh, watch Johnny's career grow as he went to uh, The Tonight Show. And, you know, the goal when I came out to L.A. in 73 was, well, Johnny's got to be retiring soon. And, you know, I want that job. <laughs> Little did I know that, you know, 5,000 other people across the country felt the same way. And I was actually uh, I was a regular at the uh, Magic Castle in Los Angeles when I first moved out to audition and became the youngest performer there at the time. And uh, wow. and then I wanted to start at the uh, comedy store and used to stand in line on Monday nights on uh, open mic nights until I became a regular in July of 76. And um, I was opening for Gallagher at a place called The Laugh Stop in Newport Beach. Wow. And he came out to me and said, uh, you know, you, you know, uh, his words, hey, Summers, you're a real a-hole. And I said, why is that? He goes, how much are they paying you to open for me? Because I was primarily doing magic. And I said, 150 bucks. And he said, that's why you're an a-hole, because you're a novelty act. Funny coming from a guy who worked props and that kind of <laughs> stuff. And he was telling me I was a prop comic. Uh, and, and so he said, you know, the comics that open for me make 300. They're paying you half because you walk out with a deck of cards and you cut a rope. So I started to slowly wean the magic out of my act and do stand-up. And, uh, you know, that was sort of the beginning of it in the mid-70s. It was that watermelon that you were missing. That was <laughs> yes. the key. Thank heavens. He was like, you need a watermelon, kid. And you're like, yes, <laughs> Mr. Gallagher. Well, that's what's funny is because some of your magic, you know, it, it was um, like in that clip I had mentioned, you have magic tricks that are just meant for a punchline. And then like you mentioned with the, the cutting the rope trick, that's actually pretty amazing. So there is this blend of like, wow, this is really funny, but it's also, wow, like how do you do that? So the yeah, blend of worked. the two. There was a, a person who sort of mentored me when I first came to L.A. at the Magic House. His name was Peter Pitt. And Peter uh, was a really good magician from Holland. Uh, first thing he did when he came to the States was the Ed Sullivan Show in the late 50s. And he, for whatever reason, took me under his wing and started to uh, groom me. Uh, as a you know comic magician, which was sort of a thing that didn't exist back then, and and he sort of owned that spot back then and was running the castle as far as booking acts or whatever, and, and took a liking to me and uh, helped nurture my uh, my career into that thing. And and you know ma magic um, for some reason uh, amazes and mystifies people, and uh, I took to it ba rather quickly and easily. And to this day, I still do it. You know, I have grandkids now and it's fun to do magic for them. But, uh, you know, I, my, most people don't know that part of my career. You know, they kind of think of me as a guy who introduced Green Slime on Nickelodeon and put Nick on the map. But, you know, it, I, I started my career as a professional magician. That's how I put myself through college. And, uh, you know, then did the stand up, did warm ups, wrote on game shows. The first game show I ever wrote on was True Their Consequences. And last year, Bob Barker hosted that. So I've been right. doing this uh, almost 40 years now. Hard to believe. And how did you get that gig writing for Truth or Consequences? Yeah. I was a page at CBS Television City. There was a guy by the name of Mark Smith who was working on the show and knew uh, I had an interest in, uh, you know, starting to write and be around game shows because I wanted to host them. And uh, he got me an audition there. And this is a, a really sweet story. So I went to his house one night and for four or five hours, we just wrote stunts that Barker would hopefully do. And uh, I left and thought, this is fantastic. And he said, well, I'll turn him into Ed Bailey, our producer uh, on Monday. And uh, Tuesday, they call me and hire me. And I find out that the stuff I wrote was pretty pathetic. Mark rewrote everything, put his put my name on it. And that's how I got the job, which was one of the nicest things anybody's wow. ever done for me. Yeah. And we're still friends to this day. Really? Oh, wow. Yeah, 50 years. Wow, yeah. that's incredible. Did you fall in love with how Johnny Carson did that first game show and that's what got you into doing it? Or do you think that you would have wanted to do a game show or be a game show host? Because I know you wanted to be a host, but would you have wanted to be a game show host if you had never seen Carson? Like if Carson didn't exist before The Tonight Show doing his show, do you think you would have resonated with another game show host? Yeah, absolutely. I'll tell you when it was. When I was, uh, as a kid, staying home sick from school or pretending to be sick from school, game shows were on NBC, CBS, and ABC, you know, all morning. And I took a liking to Bob Barker when he was doing Truth or Consequences on NBC, and I thought there was something magic and special about him. And the fact that the first show I worked on was Truth or Consequences, and then I was a page on Price is Right – and I got to know Bob really well and worked for – he had a company for a while, and I used to write questions for his uh, shows and things like that. Uh -huh. So it was weird to grow up watching a guy on TV and then actually become friends with him. 
Right. But he was probably my first influence as a game show guy. Oh, right. That's wild. So, I mean, so then I'm, I know I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but I just, I want to know what was that jump to hosting Double Dare? Like, how did you make the leap from, you know, writing for Truth or Consequence and doing magic and stand up? And uh, then jumping into that hosting gig, was it like a, a call or? I was uh, I was auditioning a lot and not getting the jobs because back in the day it was Barker and uh, oh, all these guys, Bill Cullen and older game show hosts. And I would go to audition and they'd say, you look like a Boy Scout. Come back when you have gray hair and wrinkles. <laughs> and uh, I was too young. And I also looked at the time, you know, 10 years younger than I really was when I was auditioning at 33 for game shows. They always thought I was in my mid 20s for whatever reason. And so a friend of mine, Dave Garrison, who was a ventriloquist and a friend from Indianapolis, had moved out and was doing uh, ventriloquism in clubs and got tired of it and decided he wanted to go behind the scenes and become a producer. So he gets a phone call one day in July of 86 saying, uh, you know, we're, this network called Nickelodeon, we're looking for a game show host. And he called me and said, look, I don't want to do this. Maybe you should go instead of me. And I found out that they had auditioned wow. a thousand people in New York and didn't like anybody. And they came out to L.A. and I was the first person to audition. So they yelled out, Dave Garrison. And I said, well, Dave couldn't make it. My name's Mark. And I auditioned instead. And they said, yes, which I don't think you could even do today. And I went in and uh, <laughs> I thought knocked it out of the park. I got three callbacks and that wow. August, they were going to start shooting in September. And when I got the, the, the final callback, uh, we, they were two weeks away from shooting. I didn't hear from them. So I called Mike Klinghoffer, who's the exec producer. And I said, have you guys made a decision? And he said, we got to narrow it down to you and another guy, but we just can't figure out, you know, who we should hire. Because when we did the auditions, they had grownups playing the part of kids and they didn't know if we were good interacting with kids. And wow. so I said, why don't you put us in a studio with kids and see what happens? And that's what they did. They flew us both out to uh, New York. We both uh, hosted the show. Two days later, they called me and they said, you got the job. And I said, out of all the people you auditioned, 2,000 people, what was it that stood out that got me the job? And he said, well, quite honestly, you and this last guy were about the same. But at the end of his audition, he looked at the camera and said, do you guys want me to do anything else? And I looked in the camera and said, we'll be back with more Double Dare after this. And because I threw it to commercial, they thought that was more professional. And that changed my life. Wow. wow. And, and, that's awesome. and what did you have to do in the initial audition? Uh, ask questions and uh, do physical challenges. You know, they wanted to see how well you could take charge. Uh, and uh, could you um, describe a, a physical challenge in 10 or 15 seconds, make it understood, pull it off? And then could you do the commentary in between? Because that was important. If you didn't, it was just dead air and people, you know, doing these ridiculous things. But could you do a play by play a la Howard Cosell and make it interesting? And I guess I had a knack for that. And I, had, you know, mm. here's the deal. If I would have gotten this audition when I was 22, 23, when I first came to L.A., I wouldn't have been able to do it. But mm. I was so seasoned from doing magic, from doing stand up, from doing uh, the comedy store, from doing the improv, from doing warm-ups on tv that i was so ready that you know it was perfect timing and it, it just worked out did you stop stand-up then at the time so when you got the gig did you say okay i don't want to do stand-up anymore or did you continue no. it you know i was never a really uh successful stand-up comic i was always an opening act i would do colleges and i would do you know 20 minutes uh and then you know the, the real acts were there and you know keep in mind i started in the 76 with dave letterman robin williams jay leno gary shandling and those guys you know knocked that out of the park every night and and i was i was an observational comic and and i was pretty ordinary um it it worked for a while but i don't think i was ever going to make it uh, you know to my own sitcom or uh anything like that so it was a a means to get from point a to point b i wish mm. i had more talent as a comic i, I just couldn't pull it off and what was your writing process like when you were doing stand-up and, and magic? Because, um, you know, watching a clip of you perform, you started off with a trick, then you did kind of a, your typical um, joke, joke, joke stand-up, and then you segued back into more kind of um, not, you know, more serious magic, not serious, but, you know, kind of... Yeah, a little uh, more, yeah. Yeah, like, let's, let's get saying. to the magic. So, so how did you wrestle kind of organizing that? Um, luckily at the magic castle, there were, uh, people that I could use to pick their brain and say, you know, what should I do here? What should I do there? There was a comedian by the name of, uh, and just Billy McComb, who was from England, Peter Pitt, who I mentioned, uh, was there. And I also worked a lot back in the early days with Harry Anderson. And we used to do shows together all the time. And Harry was brilliant. I mean, the first time I saw him on stage, we were the same age. 
and and I was blown away. I thought, oh my God, you know, I'll never be that good. But but uh, and so what we used to be able to do back in the day, and at the comedy store as well, um, people would would help you. I'd go on stage and and do my ten twelve minutes, and then I'd walk off stage, and Shanley would say, you know. That one joke you told about uh, going to the supermarket, it would be better if you move this word here and you got out wow. of it quicker. And he was a wordsmith. And so people would help each other and, and it just sort of evolved. You know, it would take to do a good 10, 12 minute bit could take you at least take me six, eight months to get a good 10, 12 minutes, you know. So it was wow. a work in progress always. Do you think that stand up is still that way now no. Um, no. where people help each other? No. No, I think it's every man for themselves or every woman for themselves. I don't think the camaraderie exists. Uh, the few times uh, over the last several years when I've been to a comedy club, I just don't feel the camaraderie. Mm. I don't feel um, the the energy of, uh, gee, I can help this guy or girl. And, and you know, I just, I just don't feel it. You know, there would be times where, you know, I'd be doing a gig, I don't know, somewhere in Sacramento, and I'd get a call to do – uh, a gig on the same night. And so you'd call one of your friends, my friend Glenn Super, who was a comic, uh, Ellis Levinson, all these guys I started with back in the day, and you would share. And that's what guys used to do right. back when, yeah. you know, the Ed Sullivan days with the Jack Carters and the, uh, you know, you name it. The, the, the comics were always nice to each other and they assisted each other and they wanted everybody to be successful. I just don't get that same feeling today. Maybe I'm wrong, but I just don't feel it. What do you think changed? Um... I don't know. I think it's sort of survival of the fittest now. And the other thing was when I started to do Monday nights at the comedy store, there might have been 35, 40 people line up on a Monday night. Now everybody thinks there's funny. So there's right. hundreds of people <laughs> at every open mic night at every comedy club across America. And nobody, you know, you, you, there's just not that many funny people. It's, I think it's something that you're born with. I don't think you can learn it. Uh, I think you either have the instincts or you don't. And, you know, there's a lot of people who are out there who think they're funny and, and they're just, they're just not, you know, and, and name the last comic. I mean, I, other than Sebastian Maniscalco, uh, who stands out in my mind, you know, there's like a handful of people mm. who to me make me laugh these days, you know? Do you think it's, it could be that kind of similar to your story, people are getting into the industry by doing stand up, but they can't see that it can lead to something else. Whereas you went into it knowing, Hey, this isn't really my strong right. suit, but I love hosting. I love being in front of a crowd and I'm going to, improve on my ability to speak quickly, to interact with the crowd, and then I'm going to be out and have kind of be where I'm at. Do you think people are missing that foresight? Yeah, to a certain extent. But see, when I started the comedy store in 76, it was not unusual for Norman Lear to walk in and, you know, give you a sitcom. You know, Jimmy Walker, mm. you know, got on good times because uh, Norman Lear walked in and, and saw him. Uh, Richard Pryor was doing a variety show on NBC. He'd walk into the store and say, hey, uh, anybody want to be on my show tonight? Come on, you know, and he'd grab, uh, you know, Robin Williams and four other people and, and they drive to NBC wow. and they'd be on the show. You know, those things just don't happen these days. And I also don't think, you know, there's no school on how to do this. Right. And I think you have to study it. And that's what I did. I was a student of comedy and sitcoms. And, you know, I knew who Dick Van Dyke was before anybody. Dick Van Dyke was doing game shows on CBS, you know, in the late 50s and early 60s. But, you know, nobody knew who he was back then. And, and so I always had a passion for this kind of thing and did my homework. And I think it all paid off. Yeah, I mean, for sure. I, uh, a hundred percent. Do you, have you tried to go back and do magic and stand up? you know, since like, you know, since, um, I don't know, maybe like from late nineties to now. Yeah. Every now and then, you know, I get called to host something or MC something and, and I bring it back. Uh, and it's fun to do. Um, you know, whenever I was on uh, Double Dare, I would try to throw in a trick or something that was magic-ish uh, every couple of shows uh, just to keep my uh, chops, you know, uh, together. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, when I get called now to, to, to do an event, uh, there's two or three things that I always rely on magic-wise that, that, that always work. And it, it kind of shocks people because, once again, they have no idea right, that right. that's my background. So when I walk out and do this insane card trick, uh, there's a there's also another thing online where um, uh, there was a uh, a group of folks who uh, the third Friday of every or Thursday or Friday uh, of every month called Don't Quit Your Night Job in New York. And there's a video of me on uh, on there doing a card trick uh, that blows people's minds. And so, you know, uh, I can actually do this stuff, believe it or not. I know how it works and I know how to do it. But uh, yeah, I just don't do it that often anymore. Do, do you think that people can do it now, though? Do you think that 
they could use that form of comedy? Do you think they could do stand-up oh, yeah. and magic right now and they could do that and transform into something else that they want to do? Yeah. Uh, you know, Justin Willman uh, is pulling yes. that off. He used to go under the name of Justin Credible and now he's going to his real name. And I think, uh, although he's probably more magic than comedy, right. I think, because uh, I tour a lot, I get in the cities where Justin is often, and uh, I find uh, him to be the best uh, act working in clubs today. He's just magnificent. You, you mentioned his name and the name change. I was curious to kind of ask you, because we saw a video where you explained that Mark Summers is not your original name. No, uh, I woke up one morning and they said, uh, we found the son of Sam. His name is David Berkowitz. And I thought, oh, Jesus, that was my real name, Mark Berkowitz. I thought of all the names. Yeah. Uh, forgive me, I'm uh, taking my five-mile walk, and there's a gentleman with a lawnmower behind me, so that's why all the noise is going on there. But, um, no but yeah, I woke up, and I thought of all the names. Jesus. Uh, and so the phone rang two seconds later. It was like 8.15 on that morning, and my agent said, <laughs> nobody knows who you are anyway. You're going to change your name. I, I won't be able to get you work anywhere. And so you know, I never planned on changing my name, and it's a weird thing to think about. And there was a disc jockey that I uh, grew up with in Indianapolis, and when I moved to Boston, he was there. His name was Dick Summer, and I got to know him. And so I just took uh, his last name, Summer, added an S, became Mark Summers, and started to work like crazy because the most anti-Semitic people in show business are other Jews. And so uh, uh, Mark Berkowitz wasn't working, but Mark Summers was. So, wow. so go, go figure that out. Wow. So two questions on that. One, how quickly did you change your name? And, and two, how quickly did you get work once you did change your name? It took me about six months to come up with a name. I was trying a million different things because back in the day, I started, I was a disc jockey when I was 15. And back in the DJ days, uh, it was always one syllable first names and two syllable last names. So, uh, you know, Dick Summer, work, uh, Mark Summers. And I was trying to figure out what felt comfortable because, you know, it's not your name and you got to get used to it. Right. And uh, it, it was almost instantaneous when I became Summers. Really? That I just started doing Yeah, it was the oddest thing. But I had a friend who was a comic, Howie Itzkowitz, okay? And Howie was really funny, but couldn't get a lot of work. He changed his name to Howie Stevens, started to work all the time. So wow. it was a different time. It was the 70s. And there was a lot of, you know, you couldn't have that kind of an ethnic name. Now I don't think it makes a bit of difference at all. But back then it was uh, still, uh, you know, a crucial part of – Moving forward in your career, I thought it was so weird because the when they brought back Double Dare, the the new host Jason Katz changed his name to Jason Harris. Yes, and yes. I also thought I was like, okay, that was uh, also you know just another coincidence of a name change of somebody who was hosting Double Dare. Um, I mean, I'm sure people have brought that up to you a bunch of times. Oh yeah, often, yeah. often. And if if Son of Sam uh, did not exist, would you have changed your name? Do you think or? Probably not. It didn't make any difference to me. I never went in thinking I was going to change. Now, when I was on the radio, I was uh, Mark Vaughn. I was Mark Monroe. I'm trying to think all the names when I was uh, a DJ, but uh, never liked any of those names. And Summer's just kind of, and I tell you, the funniest thing about my name is when people talk to me or refer to me, it's always one word, Mark Summers. It's not Mr. Summers or Summers or Mark. It's always Mark Summers. It's like one word, which just cracks me up for some reason, but it just just is. So uh, it, it rings in people's minds and obviously in uh, people who book uh, – talent and so uh, it's been a positive thing all the way around for the rest of the interview can we start every question with mark summers <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what was your what was your family's reaction or or friend's reaction when you did change your name or when they you know when they had just sort of seen you on tv and you were going by the name mark summers and they may have been caught off guard did anybody contact you and say hey what like you changed your name well, yeah, I was working the improv one night, and they said, please welcome to the comedy of Mark Summers. I walked down, like, being heckled. You're not Mark Summers. You're Mark Berkowitz. And it was a friend of mine, Bob Dinson, I went to high school with back in Indiana. And so that happened. And then other people said, you know, they were watching Double Dare. I, you know, I hadn't seen them in 20 years. And they were watching Double Dare with their kids. And they said, you know, please welcome Mark Summers. And I walk out, and they say, that's not Mark Summers. That's Mark Berkowitz. So, yeah, yeah, a lot of people were shocked. And, of course, the question is why. And uh, it makes yeah. sense after you tell the story, I guess. But, no, right. it was never something in my mind. That I thought, well, you know, like George Burns was Nathan Birnbaum, and Jerry Lewis was Joseph Levitch, and you know, Jack Benny was Benny Kabelski. I think back then everybody was changing their name, but uh, it was a different time once again. Right. And speaking of Jerry Lewis, I mean, I know you're a big Jerry Lewis fan, and uh, (laughs) I mean, I I know you got to interview him, and I watched that story on how you got the opportunity to interview him, and it was just a wild, wild story, but what what was it really like to interview him? Because he is not 
in the interview that I watched when you're when you're interviewing him on your show, he doesn't come mm-hmm. across as like the nicest guy. He scared the hell out of me uh, initially, um, and then I, I had the the most bizarre, rocky relationship with him. It was on again, off again. I met him uh, backstage. Uh, when he opened in Damn Yankees in New York, it was me, yeah. a friend of mine, Bert Dubrow, and uh, Cherry Springer were invited, uh, and we all went together. And uh, and I asked him to do my talk show, and he came over and and was a bit of a pain in the ass, quite honestly, and uh, and hassled me. And and I got, I could tell you endless stories of things that he did to make me feel uncomfortable. I give you the best one. Uh, I get a phone call from his office that he wanted me to do the Jerry Lewis telethon. I said great, and uh, I get to the studio Sunday morning. And uh, Kenny uh, Stein, the stage manager, says, uh, I got a message from Jerry. He doesn't want you to look at him at all when you do the uh, segment. I said, what? He said, don't look at him. He'll introduce you, walk down, hit your mark. And then when you're done, just go stage left. Do not go to the right and do not talk to him. Okay, great. And so, um, ladies and gentlemen, uh, please welcome Mark Summers. I come down. I read my thing. You know, send your money to MDA. And as I'm walking stage left, I hear Jerry go, hey, Mark, come here. Well, I was told no matter what, no matter what Jerry says, <laughs> do not under any circumstance look at him or talk to him or go over to him. And so I'm still going stage left. And the stage manager, Kenny, is telling me to come towards him. And he goes, Mark, I said, come here. So now all of a sudden, Kenny is pointing me back in the other direction. And then Jerry does what Jerry does. He, he didn't hear this guy is fantastic. And he put his armor on me and he's you know, hosts one of the best kid shows in the country. And he made Nickelodeon what it is. Please, ladies and gentlemen, one big more uh, hand for Mark Summers. And he would do that stuff all the time. Um, and, and it was all premeditated because uh, he liked to screw with people. And wow. he was a complex guy. And it's one of those things about meeting your heroes. Uh, sometimes you just don't want to do that because meeting Jerry Springer uh, turned out to be fantastic because he was even nicer than I thought he was. A smart man, a kind man uh, in so many different ways. And, you know, meeting Barker and, you know, I've, I've met so many people in my career. But Lewis might be the strangest guy I've ever interacted with in my entire life. And, and I got to know him to a certain extent, but um, he loves screwing with me. That's all I can tell you. But it wasn't only me. I talked to several other people where the things he did to me, he did the exact same things to other people because he loves, like I said, screwing around and making you feel uncomfortable. So do you think there was any malice in that or it was just uh, the fun of yeah, messing with somebody? Certain, I think both. I think both. I think, I think uh, he thought he was uh, on a level different than me, uh, you know. And and show business back in the day was a little bit different. After I did the Tonight Show with Burt Reynolds and, and that uh, whole uh, uh, you know debacle <laughs> happened, the next day his uh, publicist referred to me as a bottom feeder of show business who didn't give the movie star any. Uh, respect and it's like really i mean uh, give me a break oh my god but that's the way it is you know there's a pecking order and uh i never got into this business to be rich and famous i had a passion for it it's what i wanted to do i was lucky enough to get in and be successful and and have some fun doing it but you know some people got in it for all the wrong reasons and, and executed it beautifully you know yeah, it's just wild because I know, like, I'm myself, I'm a big Jerry Lewis fan, but, you know, after seeing the interview, when you're interviewing him and, you know, he instantly messes with you uh, on the couch and yep. I'm like, I just, I don't, I, it stinks because I'm such a big fan of his and watching him do that to you on your own show, I'm like, I don't know, I don't, I can't tell if he is genuinely trying to be actually funny or just being rude well you know the other thing about it was i asked a question about uh i said uh forgive me if i'm wrong and correct me but i said there's a lot of people out doing you in particular jim carrey who i thought yes. basically doing an impression of jerry lewis but i said there's nobody asking jerry lewis to do jerry lewis movies and it got very quiet in the studio and he looked at me and i thought he was going to walk off and then <laughs> i brought up uh, the academy award and when he said I've never done, I asked him if the Nutty Professor was the best thing he ever did. And he said, yes. And uh, I said, how do you feel about never getting an Academy Award? And he said, I've never done anything to deserve one, which I thought was the most honest thing I ever heard him say. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it, and, and, and it made sense, um, you know, that he said that the, the only part that I guess didn't make sense is that uh, I kept, you know, seeing obviously interview after interview of, of him just, you know, treating people not not right. Um, but it is kind of, you know, it is it, not kind of, it's very cool that you still, um, were also not treated right. You know what I mean? Like you mm-hmm. fell amongst the the crowd of like people who maybe idolized him and he treated you just like he would have treated, 
um, somebody else who was interviewing him, and it's cool that you kind of got to be treated like crap in a way, yeah, but, but yeah, in a yeah, good well. way. You know what I mean? Like he acknowledged that, and and it's so just cool that you guys got to become you know friends uh, to a certain degree of of, of you know of that nature. Did, did uh, it, it was hard. It was, you know, when he came and did the interview, I had done some research, as I always do, and yeah. found out that he had written a textbook on, on film that, you know, they used at USC to teach kids about how to make movies. And when right. I brought it out, he said, how the hell did you know about this? And I said, that's my, that's my job, man, you know? Yeah. And so I got him to sign that book, and, and that was cool. But uh, he, he was an odd man. You know, you can't knock his talent. Uh, yeah. He was, uh, you know, back in the 50s and 60s, brilliant. Did he grow beyond that? Not necessarily. If you want to see something that's painful, he used to do a um, a two-hour uh, talk show on uh, ABC on Saturday nights back in the 60s. And recently I found them online, I think on YouTube. And if you want to see some of the most uncomfortable television that you've ever seen in your entire <laughs> life, because it becomes the Jerry Lewis, I'm the best thing in the world, screw everybody else show. Oh, uh, oh, and, no. and you just cringe watching it. It's so horrible. Oh, no. Yeah. So now – uh, I know you mentioned Sebastian Maniscalco. Are there other comics out there, you know, or comedians that you, obviously, you know, maybe not idolize now in a way because, you know, they might be younger or older, but like, are there other ones that you follow now and you were like, oh, you know, I could have sort of, I would have been more like that comic if I continued doing like, you know, more comedy is there anybody like that you know, out there? Sebastian, to me, is like an old guy in a young person's body, you know? Yeah. And he's, he's sort of an old school comic, uh, but on a younger set. Right. And, um, and so I identify with that. I try and watch a lot of these other acts uh, when they do these specials on HBO whenever. And I just don't laugh that hard, you know? Yeah. I just, you know, where I went to see Sebastian, uh, I live up in Santa Barbara, and he was at the Santa Barbara Bowl last summer, went to see him. And I laughed my ass off for 90 minutes. I just thought he was fantastic. Um, you know, and then there's Bill Maher, who, you know, is my age, and we start about the same time. But he's a smart comic, um, and and I, I admire what he does as well. Right. But, uh, you know, uh, Trevor Noah. Noah. I saw him uh, perform not too long ago. I was doing a thing called Clusterfest up in San Francisco, and I was performing, right. and then he was performing, and and he killed. He just he freaking killed. And then uh, John Stewart uh, followed him, and he killed. And so there's some amazing, um, um, you know, executioner comic type folks who know how to set it up, deliver it and give you a hell of a punchline. And they do exist, but, uh, I don't know a lot of the real young guys. Uh, mm. I just don't stay in touch yeah. with it. You know, have you, has anybody who you, who you started out with, like when you were, when you were doing magic and comedy, has anybody been resentful to you because you became such a famous host? I can't think of one, you know, because once again, it was always uh, one for all and all for one. And we all helped each other. Right. You know, Harry Anderson exploded uh, before all of us and he, he went crazy, uh, but was always Night the nicest Court. guy in the world. Night Court. And, uh, and I did the warm up on the pilot of Night Court. That was such a weird thing. Um, wow. What was and that so, like? uh, um, well, you know, it, it was hard. It was such a quirky show. Uh, that, you know, I had done a lot of warmups back in the day and I wasn't too sure that one was going to, you know, be successful, but obviously I was wrong. It worked out <laughs> extremely well for, for many years. Yeah. Um, but I can't think of anybody of all the people I started off with, you know, I started the, you know, Leno is always the, probably the nicest comedian you've ever want to beat in your entire life. He's yeah. just genuine and kind to every wow. human, you know, Letterman and I, you know, had played racquetball and knew each other and, you know, and it were involved with the comedy store strike uh, back in the day and all that stuff. But I don't think anybody's ever close with Dave. I used to go over and hang out when Double Dare was this, you know, big cult hit. And I used to go backstage over uh, at the NBC show when it was late night and hang out with Dave. And, and you know, he's quirky. Uh, sometimes he's very nice to me and sometimes he's not so nice to me. And that's just what he is, you know. <laughs> but you've been used to was, uh, yeah, yeah, I get used to it. You know, Stanley was always very kind, uh, very helpful. Um, that's right. Robin Williams, probably the sweetest guy in the history of the world, just kind. And, and it was always wow. about you, not about him. And, uh, I went to some big dinner in New York that was honoring him. And I walked in the room and it was, you know, Walter, it was back in the day, Walter Cronkite and, you know, these, you know, every movie star you can imagine. And I said to him, he had just walked out of the kitchen. He ran into me, gave me a hug. And I said, what do you think when you walk out here and you see all these people of this stature, here to honor you. And he said, what are you talking about? Look what you've done. Look at all the things you've accomplished. And that was the kind of guy he was. He would always turn it around and make it about you. And, 
Yeah, ended up uh, committing suicide. All of us were shocked because I don't think any of us uh, that, that that Monday night after he had um, taken his life, uh, Letterman said, "I knew the man for 32 years, but apparently I didn't know him well enough." And and that's how I think we all felt. It was uh, very sad that a talent like that, uh, you right. know, did what he did. But depression's a son of a bitch, and uh, it, it hurts a lot of people. Yeah, has that. Um you know, has that ever really like struck a chord, you know, with you, you know, uh, being, you know, obviously in the industry of, you know, you know, doing many tryouts and, you know, all the rejections, you know, before you were, you know, before you hosted Double Dare, um, you know, what's that like, you know, sort of going through all those auditions and audition after audition and, and, you know, not getting stuff or getting maybe the role that you might not want. Anybody who is in this industry and especially in the world of stand-up who would say to you they've never been depressed, they're absolutely full of crap. Um, I was depressed. I talked to my wife when we first got married. Um, I was eating uh, you know, a box of Twinkies a day. I went from 137 to about 160 our first year of marriage because I was so depressed. I couldn't get anything going. I was trying. I was getting rejected left and right. So I would sit home and stuff my face with uh, you know, pastries that weren't good for me. Uh, and then I was doing a Donnie Marie one day, and they took a close-up of me, and I had 17 chins. And I thought, oh, my God, <laughs> what has happened to me? And I went on a diet instantaneously because you know the camera adds 10 pounds over and above what you weigh anywhere anyway yeah. and it just looked like hell so yeah there was a, a long period of time from the time i started the store in 76 until you know the next 10 years that i was all over the place up and down and over and out and uh you know is this ever going to happen and and uh why did they get the break and i didn't i mean that's a big thing we're all at the comedy store somebody gets picked they go to the tonight show the next thing you know they have a sitcom and you go well, wait a minute I, I, I thought i could do that well what did they have that i didn't have and it's hard not to do that, but it's also very, you know, it'll defeat you if you sit there and say, why them and not me? Right. You really can't do that. you got to move forward and be positive and and, and be, uh, you know, have a passion for your career. But I'm, I'm telling you, it's, show business is not for sissies. It, you know, if you're a wuss, it ain't for you. What I find so inspiring is that you and your wife have been married for so long and that you've yep. gone through all these, these hardships. I mean, you've been married for yeah. 46 years. Is that right? Yep. That's right, 46 you know, years. Um, how... But I've only been home for 14 of them, so that's why it works. <laughs> oh, all right. <laughs> Most of them um, on the road. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah, sure. How? I feel like there's a little bit of a misconception with people today that they think they can't do both. They can't go into um, show business and have a healthy relationship. And, I mean, you're proof that I'm sure it takes a lot of work, but that it is possible. How did – I mean, how did – and most comics, Don Rickles, Jack Benny, I mean, all the major comics that you think of, look at Leno and, and Mavis. Um, I mean, these people have been married, you know, as long as me or longer, uh, because I think com- comics, um, you know, kind of put things in perspective and, and know what their priorities are. And, you know, I was bi-coastal for many years. I was uh, doing a show called Couch Potatoes every Saturday and Sunday in L.A., and then I'd fly Sunday night on a red eye to Philly and shoot uh, – Double dares from uh, six shows a day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and then Friday fly back to L.A. But I was always at my son's uh, Little League games. You know, if sometimes if I wasn't shooting, uh, I'd take a red eye or take a 6 a.m. flight and be in L.A. by 9 o'clock and be on the baseball field to 11 um, because that's what you do as a father. That's that's an important thing. And so uh, I think it's priorities. It's how you brought up. I was brought up in the Midwest, a very conservative family. Uh, you know, my parents were married for 187 years. Um, and so <laughs> Noah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and so, you know, it's and a lot of it has to do with that. And then they used to refer to me, the comedy store as the accountant comedian, because I was the only one who was married. I got married at 22. All these guys were out, you know, trying to get laid and, and uh, doing you know, blow and, and doing, uh, you know, smoking dope and all this stuff. And, and I did my, uh, 10 minute act and got in the car and went home. Um, and so they thought that was odd, but it's kind of what I wanted and needed to do. Well, it kept you focused also. I mean, you kind of, I feel like the hardest thing in the world is probably to find someone that you truly love and you're going to spend the rest of your life with. So you, you got that out of the way early and now it was like, all right, now the pressure's on. I have a wife. Let me, yeah. uh, I got to start working. I, I got to make yeah. this, well, get this career going. You know, yeah. 
yeah, I had to get the career going, you know, and, and certain needs that you have and wants. And, you know, after being married four or five years, my wife said, you know, I'd like to start a family and like to, you know, uh, buy a house. And so these are all things that are on the agenda. And, right. you know, you're, you know, Billy Crystal was the same way. Billy got married to Janice. Uh, they've been married, I think, over 50 years now. Uh, and same thing, you know, he had a Volkswagen and he would travel from gig to gig with Janice in the uh, front seat, sometimes his daughter in the back seat. Um, and so that's what you did. You know, you stayed focused. You worked your ass off. Uh, you did clubs, you did, you know, I like the worst job I ever had is, but I had to pay the rent. I had a, a place in, uh, Sherman Oaks, California it was 125 bucks a month for a one bedroom. And there were times I wasn't working. And so every Sunday night I would go to Long Beach, California and host a wet t-shirt contest for 50 bucks. And so 50 <laughs> bucks times times four was $200 and I could pay the rent, you know? Wait, you would soak yourself and then win the 50 bucks? <laughs> no, they just literally, they would take a hose and hose off these girls. And, uh, you know, and then I would come out. And I remember the first night I started, the club owner came out to me and said, hey, Berkowitz, keep it clean. It's like, oh, yeah, right. Okay, we're doing a wet t-shirt contest. You want to keep it clean. But, you know, these are the jobs that nobody tells you about. Yeah. Uh, but it's, you do what you have to do yeah. to, to stay alive. So you went from getting girls clean to covering people in, in slime. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and green uh, liquids. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. You know, there was always some substance I was pouring on some human to do something. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. That's what, great. What, what, what about, like, uh, growing up? Because I know you just mentioned your parents real quick. Were they – did they get to see um, – and forgive me, I don't know if they're still here. Did they get to see, you know, your success? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. In fact, I was in Hollywood Squares once, and they were in the audience. And, um, uh, the producer brought them on. They got to sit in the square wow. with me for a while. Oh, so right. that was cool. And, you know, they saw me on Oprah. I did Oprah a couple times, yeah. you know, The Tonight Show. So, yeah, uh, my dad's been gone about uh, eight or nine years. My mom is 94 and still uh, alive and kicking. Wow. Uh, so she's doing fine. But, uh, yeah, but uh, they were able to see all of it. And it was very exciting to be able to share that with them and for them to come backstage and, and meet some of these people and, and just uh, be involved. And my brother was also very successful, still is. He's a musician, and he conducted for Marvin Hamish for 10 years. He wow. played drums yeah. for, you know, Liza Minnelli for years. I mean, he's he's been very successful. So they had uh, two kids in show business from Indianapolis, Indiana, while he was uh, first had a grocery store and then sold insurance. And so, you know, how that happened, I have no idea. But, uh, <laughs> you know, just worked. And then, so they were... When you were growing up and you were trying to, you know, pursue magic and comedy, they were all for it then. Not really. Um, my mother thought I was, uh, I was going to be a professional magician. My mom said, you need to go in the insurance business with your father because you have a good personality. And I couldn't think of anything closer to hell than to, you know, call somebody <laughs> up and say the word God forbid 50 times. So, you know, it's, it was never for me. I never could do a real job. Oh, uh, and I never wanted to do a nine to five kind of thing. It just wasn't in my makeup. You know, I even as a kid, I would be up all night. Uh, you know, I would go to there was one place in Indianapolis that sold weekly variety and I would take the bus down every Saturday and pick up a variety for 50 cents and read it cover to cover three times and go back next Saturday and do it. Cause it was the closest to show business I could get. And, uh, you know, I, I was a DJ in Elwood, Indiana when I was 15 WBMP. I was working weekends from six to 11. And when I left, Dave Letterman took my place. So, uh, really? you know, wow. yeah, yeah. So it's just, you know, it's weird how all these things work out and you get to know these people. And, you know, I was working on the Mac Davis show in 76 when Dave first came out and, uh, you know, it's just, it's just so weird how our paths have crossed throughout the years and, and, you know, show business is just a weird thing. And everybody thinks we all know each other and we're all best friends, but it's just kind of not the, the way it is. You know, um, I really don't have any friends in show business. It's just not a, it's just not an area that I really care to get involved with. So I, I never mm. hung out with a lot of people in the industry uh, at all. Oh. Is that what kind of works for you that you're able to turn it off? That you're able to, yeah. you know, go do a gig and then you go home and you're you're 100% with your family in that moment. Exactly. Exactly. It's always worked well for me. But I do have to ask, though, has being Mark Summers helped you out in, in like, any outrageous ways, though? Like, have you been, like, uh, you know, trying to get into a restaurant or something like that where, you know, you know because you're Mark Summers, they're like, we'll get in here. It always helps. Uh, and certainly working at the Food Network for 20 years uh, yeah. has also been great. And, you know, when you can drop Bobby Flay or, you yeah. know, uh, Guy Fieri's name uh, or get them to say, hey, uh, you know, I need to go to this restaurant on Valentine's Day and I forgot, can you help me out? And they'll make a phone call and magically make it happen. So, yeah, the, the idea of celebrity of, you know, cutting through to lines and and, uh, and stuff like that. Yeah, it's it, I've been very lucky 
to get into hotels that were all booked or upgraded or whatever. And whatever that celebrity thing is, um, I will say that's one uh, perk that I absolutely love. It's, it's, it's been pretty magical along the way. I think that's why everyone tries to get into show business is so they can get reservations and skip yeah, just, lines. Just the free food <laughs> and skipping you. lines. You know, and I've been in lines. I, I was in, in Orlando and they had just opened up this big ESPN place and I was way back in the line and uh, the manager was walking up and down and he said, excuse me, what are you doing? I said, what do you mean what I'm doing? He said, why are you standing in line? I said, well, I'm just a guy trying to get in. He goes, come with me. And he took me right in, you know. So when it happens like that, it's it's just kind of cool. And, and uh, you know, for you to uh, take three pictures and give three autographs to him, his kid, and uh, one of the servers, uh, it takes, you know, it takes two seconds of your time. And it's easy to be nice to people. And, you know, the only thing I would say, just because you're on TV doesn't make you special. And it's nice to be important, but more important to be nice and i try to live my my life that way wow. yeah has anyone gone overboard you know like obsessed fans of yours oh yeah i've, I've got some interesting stories with that there's some <laughs> people who are a little unusual we had this one woman when i was hosting a talk show called uh biggers and summers on lifetime who yeah. flew up from uh the florida area and would be stalking me out in front of uh, the studio uh, and somehow got my and was calling me and and that was it, oh, weird and wow. um yeah it, it happens people find you and and stalk you and and uh uh it's interesting you know they they get a hold of uh, you know and of course now with social media with direct message or whatever oh, people yeah. can find you and and have bizarre requests uh and will tell you various things about their lives that you really just don't want to know but they feel <laughs> that you can help them in some form or fashion and then of course everybody thinks you're rich and they want they ask you for money and and that's you know the other misnomer that just because you're in the entertainment industry doesn't make you uh, you know uh, an extremely wealthy human being so uh, i wish i had half the money that people thought i had but uh but unfortunately i don't and so i cannot write checks to everybody who calls up and says you know i need this and it's 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 heartbreaking sometimes. You know, Mark, you never did respond to my Venmo request. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or, Ryan's been asking Venmo? for a while. Or my DM <laughs> about all those pictures of you that I need. Yes. <laughs> I, I told it. you I have an eBay account to run, and you're really <laughs> disrupting it. Oh we don't God, make any money funny. on this podcast. We need those photos. <laughs> Uh, um, I, I wish we were kidding. We're not. We're um, not but, kidding. <laughs> yeah, we're not. But, but no, I mean, uh, that that's amazing. I mean, it's just, it's just funny because, you know, when I hear all, you know, fan stories like that, it's funny because when you think about it, these people don't know you. They they think they know you. They think they know who yeah. you are, but they, yeah. they sort of concoct something in their mind of who they think you are based upon what they've seen you do on television. Yeah. It's very true, you know, and and uh, I can tell you two stories. One, uh, I was uh, doing a live show in Cleveland, Ohio, and I had to catch a plane, get to the airport, and these kids kept, you know, and I deal a lot with kids and from the Nick days, and so I kept getting stopped by these kids. Could you sign this? Could you sign this? Can you sign this? And and the uh, police officer from Cleveland grabbed me by the neck and threw me against a fence. And he said, young man, you have a problem. And I said, excuse me. And he goes, you have to stop being so nice to everybody. And it's like, Oh my God. You know? Uh, <laughs> oh my and, yeah. And, and so, and, and it does make it difficult sometimes because you yeah. don't want to disappoint people because, you know, then as soon as you, you have to stop the line somewhere when you, when you, people are doing pictures and autographs and they're there forever, somebody needs to cut the line off. Right. So you don't look like an idiot. And then, you know, if you're that next person in line who doesn't get one, you know, out come the, hey, you asshole, uh, you know, you think you're important because right. you're on TV and people start screaming at you. Yeah. Uh, when the reality of it is, you know, you can't stand there for the rest of your life and do it as much as you want to because you have a life to lead. So it's it's hard. It's hard. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, look, look what we're talking about. You know, it's also silly. I mean, the fact that anybody even wants my autograph is ridiculous. And and so uh, other people have to sort of wrangle that whole situation. And, you know, back when we were doing uh, – we started doing malls, and we were filling malls with 10,000 people, which is why we went to arenas with the Double Dare live show. And, you know, 10,000 people walk into a mall. What the hell are you supposed to do? I mean, you just can't cover everybody. And it's, it's, it's hard. Oh, yeah. And then once again, because you're dealing with kids, you don't want to disappoint a kid in any way shape or form so right uh, right does yeah. your fam does your family see that do they see that other side of you like <clears throat> the the side that some of the fans seek or they're are they like why is you know dad or why is he signing you know all these things and not not why but like do they understand that sort of 
that aspect. Well, I was doing win, loser, draw once, and we were shooting in Disneyland. And my son must have been about eight, and my daughter was five. And we got done shooting, and they let us go, uh, you know, run around the park. And as I left uh, my dressing room, I got mobbed by all these people. And my son wanted to go on Space Mountain, and my daughter was like, you know, holding one hand. And Matthew said, come on, Dad, come on, Dad. And Meredith said, done signing his autographs and doing his pictures, Matthew. We'll go to Space Mountain, so you're just going to have to be patient. And I always thought that was so funny that this little five-year-old kid got it. And my son was like, who are these people? And tell them to get the hell away from me. I need to go and, uh, you know, be on the rides and stuff. So, yeah, I mean, all, all the time that happens, uh, no matter where you go, uh, yeah. people want to stop you in airports and, and, you know, hotels or, you know, we're out to dinner, you name it. I mean, the, the weirdest thing is sometimes people are rude and you'll be having dinner and they'll come and I literally had this person one day sit down at my table and say, people are not going to believe who I had dinner with tonight. Oh, and they oh, sat yeah. there and I was like, no matter what I did, they, they wouldn't leave, you know? It's almost like you need a police officer always there to just throw you against a wall. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you understand why uh, people have bodyguards at some point, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. And I'm always reluctant to, to go up to celebrities unless I really know them because they get bothered uh, all the time. The, the one thing that happened to me where I always felt horrible until this day, I was in uh, New York. Uh, it was around uh, Christmas time with my uh, family. They were young once again. Uh, my son was probably, you know, nine. My daughter was six. And we were having hot chocolate. I had just bought this new leather sort of shoulder bag backpack thing. And my daughter moved her arm and all this hot chocolate went over this brand new bag and it was destroying it. And a bus had just let out from a school group down at the South Street Seaport and they discovered me. Oh, Mark Summers, Mark Summers, I want to get a picture with her. And I said, can't you see that there's cocoa all over? And I got really (laughs) huffy. And then I thought, oh, my God. And the kids turned white. And I ended up sitting there for an hour and a half uh, and took pictures with every kid individually um, because I didn't want them to think this guy they watched on Nickelodeon was a total jerk. So uh, the bag was destroyed, but I had to help those kids. And that's what I ended up doing. Wow. I mean, it really is like being a mall Santa Claus. You have to. You're you're always in costume in a way. Yeah. Except without the beard. Yeah, you know, and if you're just, you know, if you're just a stand-up comic and not just a stand-up comic, but I mean, if that's what you do for a living or you host a talk show, or you're on a sitcom, you know, I think you can be a little bit more, hey, you know, I'm here with my family and now's not a good time and I appreciate you watching the show, but, you know, this is my time or whatever. You could do that. I was I was never able to do that, um, you know, so I just it, it's 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 fine. You know, uh, yeah. it's paid the bills for many years and uh, I have zero complaints. Yeah. And now, and again, like Ryan was saying earlier, you've, uh, you know, fell into this category, obviously of like iconic celebrities and, you know, obviously that must feel really good. Uh, you know, there's it no does. way, there's no way it couldn't. Is there, is there any thing so far that you have wanted to do that you haven't done? Broadway. Yeah. I always wanted to be on Broadway and, um, and I'm, I'm still working to it at, at age 68 and a half. I'm still trying to make that happen. So, you know, uh, not to get into this too heavy right now, but you know, I had cancer diagnosed 10 years ago and then I was in a car accident where I broke every bone in my face. And I thought, well, Jesus, uh, you know, I mean, I get another shot and I've been talking about it for so long about somehow trying to audition for some theater stuff. And I talked to Bruce Valanche, uh, was doing hairspray on Broadway and I had lunch with him and he said, you've been talking about this for years. When are you going to finally do it? And so, um, I called a friend who was producing Broadway shows and I said, I know I don't start on Broadway, but how do I get in a show? And, you know, I know I'm kind of old and all that stuff. And he said, I just bought a uh, theater where we're doing summer stock. I don't know what shows we're doing yet, but you know, let me find out and I'll call you. And he offered me a part playing Vince Fontaine in Greece. This was like seven, eight summers ago, maybe nine now. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so I, I got into that and then I realized, Oh my God, I love this more than anything I've ever done. And I met a guy by the name of Drew Gasparini, who was uh, doing stuff on Broadway, and he introduced me to a guy by the name of Alex Brightman, and Alex has since starred on Broadway in School of Rock and Beetlejuice, and he yep. wrote a one-man show for me, yep. and uh, and so I did that first at a place called Bloomington Playwrights Project, and then we did it at the Adirondack Theater Festival, and then yeah. a documentary was shot on it, and so um, that's what I'm still working on. I'm still working on, uh, you know, the world is crazy right now with everything going on, mm-hmm. but uh, I'm hoping uh, that some Someday in the near future, uh, before I leave this earth, I get a chance to do uh, something on Broadway. Well, this is coming full circle because now I think this is your chance to have a crooner musical. Right. I think we need <laughs> maybe the go. life of Frank Sinatra and just do that. 
Yeah, it would be fun. <laughs> Wouldn't it be amazing? My God. How was that experience doing Greece? Was that, I mean, yeah. I, I loved it. You know, Vince doesn't have a, uh, a, a big role, uh, but you know, he's got a, a one meaty scene and, uh, my biggest fear was, uh, am I going to forget my lines every night? So, uh, I was, I was a nervous wreck, but, uh, got through it one night. Uh, I forgot, uh, what I was supposed to say, but it turned out to be a pretty funny moment, but, uh, you know, it's just, live audiences man it goes back to when i did magic and stand-up there's nothing better than a live audience and and i that's what i miss yeah i mean and it's really cool that you got to be able to do a show you know about yourself obviously with people who wanted to come to see more about you and then do you know on your mark that you know that the documentary you you were mentioning yeah. you know um it's it's it must again feel surreal because it must signify like all right like whoa like i've made it because there's a documentary about me, you know what I mean? Like there's a show that people are coming to see that's about my struggles and my life and my success. Um, you know, so at the end of the day, uh, it's, it, I don't know, it's, it's very cool. And I, I'm just really excited to see what you do next personally. That's, you know. Well, that's, that's kind of, you know, I remember back, I was in high school and Merv Griffin had an hour with Bob Hope and they were at the end of the hour and Merv said to Bob, you know, there's been so many people who have been influential in your life. If you had to point to one person who got you from point A to point B, who would it be? And Bob Hope pointed to himself. And, <laughs> and I never forgot that. And I kind of feel the same way um, in that there were so many people in the industry who I first met who, you know, stay in touch and give me a call and I'll help you who never came through. And so I like to think um, with all due respect to all those people out there who I interacted with, the reason I am where I am is because I was passionate, never gave up, worked my ass off and got to where I'm going. And that's why I always felt that if I was lucky enough to make it, that I was going to be able to help other people. And that's why I get so much joy in these days is I meet young performers and uh, seems that everybody has my phone number or email address and they get in touch with me and I've taken more people to breakfast, lunch and dinner. But it's, it's great to hear these stories of these young kids who get out of college and what their passions are and, and somehow they connect with what it is I've done. And they're just asking for advice. And I, you know, advice is what it's, you know, it's worth what you pay for it. Uh, so sometimes it's worth nothing, but uh, it's a, it's a fun part of my life to be able to help others and help them get from point A to point B. I mean, even when you got, you know, the job hosting Double Dare, I, I don't think I would have called back and said, hey, what's the deal? And, and made it work. I think that, like you said, you're, you're not counting on someone else to make the call for you. You're going out no. there and getting uncomfortable and making the call and, and directing your own life. And um, again, I've never I, had an agent get me a job ever. Wow. No, everything that's happened, I've gotten on my own. Whoa. They've negotiated good stuff for me, but I've never had an agent ever give me a job. And I've been doing this for 40 years and I've been with William Morris and everybody else in between. And uh, not one of them has ever gotten me a job. Well, screw wow. WME. They're all nice. They're all no, good I'm people. Kidding. They try hard. But uh, yeah, but it's it's uh, it's a strange business. Yeah. Well, I mean, you can like we talked about before, it's it's um, inspiring. Um just the goal is to be a good person and to be kind. And Yeah, uh, I really think so. I wanted to personally thank you, Mark, again for doing our podcast and, you know, doing our silly show, Two Buffoons, uh, a while back. And, uh, you know, I really, <laughs> I really, really appreciate it so much. Uh, you know, again, your inspiration You've been very kind. to us. Uh, I appreciate you saying that because you, you've been very kind to me and giving me opportunities. And once again, you know, if I can help in any way, that's why I'm here. So I wish you good luck on this thing. And, uh, Hopefully it blows up and you guys become, uh, you know, big celebrities and make all sorts of dough. And then people will be putting you on podcasts and talking to you about it. Mark, don't be surprised if we're in a parking lot doing white T-shirts. <laughs> yeah. Did I say white T-shirts? Wet T-shirts. Yeah, Wet T-shirts. Either way. Yeah. Uh, I go, whoa, we got it wrong. We're just selling white T-shirts. <laughs> yeah. We didn't listen to a thing Mark said. All right, that was episode three of Joke Artists. Thanks for listening. Be sure to give us a follow. Subscribe at Believe.com. That's B-L-E-A-V.com. You can also subscribe on Spotify, on iTunes, on Stitcher, wherever you find your podcast. Go follow us, rate us a five, because as we keep saying, if you don't rate us, you unfortunately you have to. Have to date you, us. Yeah, yep. Yeah. And we just can't. We're running out of time. We don't have enough free time to go on dates with all of you. So if you right. just rate us. Especially during the pandemic. It's oh, very it, tough for us. But I mean, if you want to do it, if you have to make us do it, we'll do it. We are doing it, but we yeah. don't want to continue doing it. So please just, just right. hit five stars and that'd be great. 
Anywho, you could uh, do all that to keep up with us, and you can also follow Mark Summers at Twitter at Real Mark Summers. This is a uh, Twitter tag. You can also and it's go also to- his, it's also his tag on Instagram too. Real Mark Summers. Whoa! So just at Real Mark Summers across the board, you could contact Mark and say, "Hey, I heard you on uh, Joke Artists. Uh, joke Artists, and uh, boy, was <laughs> I horny." Or, yeah, that's just an example. You don't have to say that. Uh, and you can also go to MarkSummersTV.com to find out everything that Mark is up to uh, production-wise. Yeah, and he's up to a lot. Some would say too much. He's up to a lot of prestigious he's up to no good. magic. <laughs> Imagine his, his thing that says, on this date I'll be up to no good. On, in <laughs> Santa Monica at 7. <laughs> People just watch from afar and like, well, he wasn't kidding. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.